Today's campaign podcast is sponsored by the Mini MBA series. The Mini MBA series was created by marketing professor Mark Ritson. It's aimed at every marketeer who wants to reach the top of their game. The Mini MBA will help you tackle big challenges, seize big opportunities, perhaps even find a big new job. The Mini MBA is designed to give people the tools, language and confidence they need to tackle big marketing and business challenges. It takes lessons from the world's top business schools and makes them more flexible, more accessible and more affordable. With the Mini MBA, you'll get a great return on your investment in terms of skills, expertise and confidence in your role. To find out more, search for Mark Ritson Mini MBA. Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. My name is Bo Jackson, I'm media editor at Campaign and I'm joined today by two guests leading the charge on mental wellbeing in advertising. We have IPA President and Group M Chief Executive for EMEA and UK, Josh Krzyzewski, and Sue Taj, Chief Executive Officer of Advertising's Wellbeing Charity, NABS. Welcome both of you to the Campaign Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm a Blue Monday disbeliever, but as we're chatting now we have actually made it through January so it feels like a good time for us to be talking about the topic of mental well-being so I'm going to start off with just asking you how has the longest so-called month of the year been for both of you? Mine's been great Uh, I've had a really great Jan I think it's a combination of I had a really long Christmas break nearly three weeks I didn't host anyone at my house. I went to other people, so I wasn't exhausted from that. I fasted for the first time, which I have found after the first three days of being in excruciating pain, good for my energy. So uh, it's personally been fantastic. Oh, and NABs are in a new office, which I think has given us a little new boost. We moved over Christmas, so lots of natural light, lots of nice exposed brick, a new part of town. So I think that just always gives you a bit of a, a lift, doesn't it, when you've got a bit of change. And Josh, how's it been for you? I had a really good break over the Christmas holidays and I really needed it. If I'm honest with you, I was exhausted at the end of last year. I was really crawling to the end, traveling a hell of a lot and just lots going on. So I needed it. I came back very refreshed and (laughs) it's been mixed, I would say. I mean, it's kind of like it's some days are great and some days are harder. Yeah. So, I mean, and you've kicked off the year with your People First Promise, Josh, haven't you? Could you tell us a bit more about that and where that came from? Yeah, I mean, that's been a great start to the year for me. I'm obviously very passionate about this. So when I took on the IPA presidency, I wanted my agenda to be very much about people. And there there are a few different elements to it. Part of it's about mental health and well-being, which I'll talk about in a minute. Part of it's about really celebrating the impact that our industry has on modern Britain and really making, I want it to be like a a really attractive industry for talent. And I also want it to be an industry where we retain diverse talent because I think we're a pretty inclusive industry when you compare us to others. Mm -hmm. But I still feel like if you look at the makeup of agencies, I think you you see success in bringing diverse talent into the agencies and so you see at more kind of more junior levels or up to mid-management levels are definitely more reflective of the UK population makeup of the agencies but when you get into more senior positions you don't see that and I think that that I I think that's a reflection of we're still not nailing how to make people from all sorts of different backgrounds belong in our industry so so I think that's the kind of second pillar. And then the third pillar is about mental health and well-being, which frankly is related to the other two as well. 
And that's something I've been very passionate about for, for a long time. And so we've created this thing that we're calling Adlan's Wellbeing Lab, which is basically a place on the IPA website where you can go and get amazing resources, including resources from, from NABs, which are designed to provide support for our member agencies or frankly any company in our industry um, to help the mental health and well-being of people in the companies. And it's divided out in three sections and the sections are empower, support and prevent. What I'm asking leaders of companies in our in our industry to do is to sign up to the People First Promise. And to do so, you have to provide evidence that you're doing various things within those three different sections. Mm-hmm. So that's what the People First Promise is about, is I'm asking leaders to sign up and say, we are doing this, we want to share that and have a People First Promise badge of honour that we can use to A, be held to account by our own people, B, attract new employees into organisations and C, actually attract clients because clients are taking this stuff more seriously. So that's really, that's what the promise is all about. I mean, if we look at the industry then as a whole, Sue, because obviously demand for NAB services has increased by 66% over the past three years and mental wellbeing is something that well society as a whole has been struggling with for some time but there are challenges specific to advertising so where do you think the advertising industry is when it comes to mental well-being are we have we seen an improvement is it are we getting on the track to you know giving better support I mean there's no question I think there's been a seismic change in the last five years across society generally in our industry specifically and I think progress has definitely been made. I mean, I think the NAB's numbers going up steadily since COVID is interesting because I think what people probably perceived is that there was a period during the pandemic and just after where people were seeking more support and that it might drop back off, but it hasn't. Mm -hmm. It's actually continued to climb up to kind of 10,000 people plus in 2023, which is is enormous and shows no signs of abating. And the key three reasons people come to NAB's hasn't really changed. Number one's been emotional support and looking after their emotional well-being number two has been financial support and number three has been redundancy for quite some time but the sheer volume that's coming is changing and I think what we've begun to recognize is that even when people come in for say help through the cost of living crisis and that could have been through coaching or therapy or financial advice but it could have been in the form of grants that we issue or when they've come for redundancy advice which could appear to be quite a transactional support ask the reality is that under all of those issues comes some element of emotional well-being. So our pivot to kind of, I guess, restate our mission, which we did 18 months ago, has pretty much been here to advance the mental wellness of the industry, was in recognition that although our door as a charity is open to everyone in the industry for whatever they're struggling with, the reality is that what most people are asking for is either deep, intense individual support, of which you know Josh has just described some from average of seven to 12 individual therapy sessions for someone who's possibly at the end of what we'd call more of a a crisis to people who are just looking to tool themselves up and get better at managing pressure, managing stress, grow their confidence, become a more inclusive leader, 
or have a conversation with some of their colleagues across the industry about how to deal with some of the dilemmas that we're all facing from global issues around, you know, what's been going on in Palestine and Israel down to, you know, the economic hardships that people might be facing or difficult conversations. So I, I think we're doing well, but I think the need is changing. And I think that's partly a reflection of the fact that people are a bit more comfortable sticking their hand up and asking for help, which is a good thing. But, you know, it, it doesn't mean the demand and the need for us to pay attention to this subject has progressed enough because the numbers just keep going up in terms of people's uh, need to um, and willingness and want to improve in this area. That's what I was going to say, actually. I was going to ask you how it's not necessarily a bad thing that it's going up. It's that people are, I, I guess, taking responsibility and actually sitting up and being like, no, actually, I could do something about this. Yeah, you, Do you think it's a positive perhaps that people are taking more responsibility for their own mental health? I do. I think I think an element of it is positive, definitely. And I think it's because, you know, the conversation is changing. But I also think, you know, one of the things we found out in a piece of our own research last year, our consultation, was that once conversations open up on those topics, expectations also rise. And I think one of our findings that we found out in consulting with the industry last year was that the gap between policy coming out of organisations and sector and practice was getting a bit wider. And I think it's a reflection of the fact that people are doing more work to put in the initiatives and put a lens on this topic in their organisations. So that's the good bit, but it raises expectations so that when times are tough and the pressure is on, we've got a little bit of feedback that essentially what happens is the initiatives go out and the policies go out the window. And so the real shift we've now got to make is to embed the practice as well as share best practice, which is one of the things that Josh is clearly facilitating with the curation of the, the lab. You know, we've got to learn from others. We've got to find out what works. We've got to be accountable for the things that get results, which all of the People First Agenda will help us do. But we've also got to move from initiatives and policy to embedding good practice. And for me, that comes down to attention on people managers and making sure they are absolutely taken care of in the sense of being capable and able to create environments where people who are struggling can speak up, but also that they themselves know where to seek help or where to you know, signpost people to when they're struggling. One of the stats in the research was that a quarter of new managers and leaders get training. So, you know, 75% not getting any is pretty high. And I think we just need to look into what good practice looks like on some of the, we used to call them soft skills. I think we're now realising they're quite essential skills, but, you know, around how you create psychological safety and how you help people have difficult conversations and all sorts of other areas that I think will embed great practice and drive the culture forward, as well as let's learn from each other, let's find out what works best and let's put the right policies and initiatives in place. I really agree with that. I mean, I've, like I said this when I gave the speech the other week, you know, I've launched initiatives or I've been part of a leadership that's launched initiatives before that have had no lasting impact at all. I think we all Um, have, yeah. And what I guess I really want to achieve is what Sue has just said there, which is, it's actually really understanding what are the core systemic things that make a lasting difference you know in a sustainable way and what i mean by that is you can't just launch and leave things that just doesn't work and and, and i think you know it's great that people are talking about this stuff more now than they ever have done before it came out definitely from covid but if you're if if you try and run a business in a way whereby you go okay so let's launch some initiatives then and then that should solve it you're just not going to be successful like the, the core things are you giving employees, as many employees at every level in the business, as much training and education and understanding as you possibly can? If you're not, then you're not going to be successful in this area, particularly, as Sue said, managers. You know, 
how can you be a manager if you don't really understand well-being? I, I don't think you can in this day and age. Do your leaders really care? Leaders need to care about their people. I think in the main they do, by the way. I, I think you'd be hard pushed to find a business in our industry where you don't have leaders running the companies that really care about their people. I think they do. But I think that has to kind of ring true in, in everything they do. It can't be like a it can't be like an add-on to what their core values as, as a leader are. They have to be absolutely core to everything that they do as a business. And that's why I talk about people first, because that's all we really have. So I absolutely agree with what Sue was saying. It's less about the kind of tactical initiatives and much more about the kind of the, the, the genuine core things that are going to make the biggest difference. Something that I get frustrated with is when mental health gets used as an excuse or gets used as like kind of, a, oh, I can't do this because of, I've got a mental health issue when it's, things get conflated. I guess that's a negative that comes with the positive of it being a big conversation. So it's not like I, I regret that it's a big conversation, but I think what Sue was talking about is, you know, identifying where somebody is on a journey is such an important part of being able to make sure that we're, ma- we're helping and managing and supporting our people properly, rather than just going, don't know what to do. This person's got a mental health issue, you know, yeah, and then yeah. not dealing with it in the right way. I totally agree with Josh because I think, you know, what we're really doing here, although we're putting the lens of our industry and our organisations and work issues at the fore of this, is we're trying to help people cope with their lives, you know, to a certain extent, whether they're leaders or entry level. You know, this stuff is important for us all forever, you know, because you never know when something might move from just being a bit of a tough day or some stress to something that's a bit more serious. And knowing what that means, how to spot it in yourself and others and, and, and how to signpost for support in those areas is a really important dialogue and everybody's limit on those things is clearly different so you know one person's bad day or bad week can be somebody else's kind of you know catastrophe but you know we've all got different tolerances so I think all of that stuff is a really useful conversation we shouldn't shy away from helping educate and train people in the nuances of this because there is definitely not one size fits all yeah I think that is some of the temptation, isn't it, to throw an initiative in and hope that it sticks. We had seen it a lot in the pandemic and I saw companies criticised for like, oh, our staff are struggling with wellbeing, let's give them a yoga class. But actually during their work hours when their workload is already huge and it's not really effective, it's just another thing to throw at them. But then you also want to say one man's solution might be yoga. Do you know what I mean? For some people it is right. It might be, you're right. I also think it's really difficult because it gets a bit woo-woo at one end, doesn't it? But then on the other hand, you go, yeah, but for somebody that could be their main coping strategy, you know, that because that's perhaps in mindfulness Mm. and all the other things that go with it. So it's really difficult, isn't it, not to be dismissive about some of the small things that might help people. But on the other hand, I think Josh is right to focus on the things that we get proven results from and that drive systemic change long term just to say I'm not anti-yoga I do actually (laughs) (laughs) I've taken up classes actually on the off the back of January so that has been really useful just to build on what you've been saying there then about you know having some real effective change in organizations do you do you have any specific examples not of initiatives but of things that leaders you've seen leaders do that have really helped and made a difference to staff's well-being you know everyone talks about you know leaders need to be vulnerable and I agree with that by the way I think it's exactly right I think sharing is something that both when it's done on stage or is done on email but kind of that openness when it comes from leaders it demonstrates a that 
this is a culture where you can be completely open and not be judged for it. That openness thing is really important. It's so important to culture of business. And when I was running Mediacom in the UK back in 2016, it changed the culture immediately. And, and what happened was actually to the point that you were talking about earlier about how suddenly loads of people were like, I've got to be honest, like HR were having a lot of people coming and talking to them and saying, you know, I've got a real problem. I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. There were people talking about being suicidal. There was, you know, suddenly there was this influx of people and they were going, God, what have we done? Why did we start doing this? Like, this is terrible. It's crazy. But actually it was a really positive thing because it allowed people to have an outlet to be able to go and talk to people. And then it sort of died down a bit actually. But I think what happened was it, it just changed the culture of the business and made it a much more open, inclusive business. And, and so I think that for me is the most powerful thing that a leader can do in a business that doesn't cost anything, honestly. And prevention is better than cure. And I just think it's a, the best example of when I talk about prevent, for me is the best example of that is, is, is that, sh that, you know, Sue was talking about psychological safety before. I think that really helps in, in with that area of things. I also just think general role modeling from leaders and managers. So I think it goes beyond the sharing your own story or sharing any struggles you might have. I think it can go into just showing people it's okay to take your holidays, showing people, you know, showing people it's good to take rest and restore times after moments of high pressure. I think it's also behavioral you know because I think it then gives people both permission to also open up but to see that actually it's not just talk that you know you yourself are also taking care of yourself by taking your holidays or you know having your own boundaries whatever they are um, and we, look we all know we're here to do work and occasionally those boundaries get stepped on or overtaken and that's fine but I think just having some sort of sense of senior people also look after themselves is is really important because mm -hmm. as Josh says prevention is far better than getting yourself into a crisis, um, for sure. Are you a marketer facing a big challenge or a big opportunity? Maybe you're moving to a big new job. Well, you need the Mini MBA. I'm Mark Ritson, and I launched the Mini MBA to pack every little slice of valuable learning into a tiny amount of time. It will give you all the tools, all the language, and all the confidence you need to tackle any marketing challenge. That's why we like to say, Mini MBA, major ROI. How would you suggest organisations go about it if if their leaders perhaps aren't taking that tack and aren't as, you know, perhaps perhaps they've just got so, so ingrained in not taking holidays because they think, you know, it's a really high pressure time and they're not doing it. How would you perhaps shift that perspective? But I think we've all been there where we haven't modelled the best practice every day of our lives. So we're not robots, you know. So I think, you know, even if you've got seen your job as big as Josh's, I'm sure he's not, you know, you know, we're not all doing everything perfectly. But I think if you've created a culture where either your own team can, you know, ask you why, why you're not taking your holidays or you seem to be working late lately as well. My team asked me if they, I think, or, you know, challenge me a bit if they think, um, you know, I'm not, you know, maybe looking after myself as much as I could. So I think if you have a culture like that generally, then you're more likely to get challenged or people genuinely, you know, call out some concern for you. So I think you need a culture to rest on more than one person's responsibility at the top. And I'm sure great people leaders would also tackle and raise those sorts of things with senior leaders as well, if the culture uh, so allows it, which you'd hope it would. So because we can all go off the boil a bit, can't we? We can all have a 
get a bit head down and go, actually, I'm here till nine o'clock, 10 o'clock tonight. We're all going to have periods where we do that. And for me, it's about the fact that that's personal choice when you're trying to get through something. And it's not telling everybody else they've also got to do it. You know, kind of all that stuff that we're trying to get better at, you know, from having signatures on our emails saying, listen, I work out of hours and it suits me, but that doesn't mean I expect everyone else to. So I think it's a really fine balance. I don't think we're going to be perfect and do things all the time because it's deeply personal but I think if you've got a culture where people can check in on you too and maybe give you some feedback but it's it's not setting the best example if you've been doing it for six months then that helps I think. I think it's a pretty good signal that you haven't got a great culture if you can't say that to the boss. Sue's right you know we're not perfect and we we do things in different ways and but I, I guess you know I work very hard but I also I'm pretty open about how I look after myself. Yeah. You know I think People know I look after myself and that's not a crime. Mm-hmm. And that's it's actually a good thing. It's like that whole, you know, that whole thing that they say when you're on an aircraft. They say if the thing comes down, make sure you put your own thing on before you look after you. Yeah. And I think that's that's the key thing is you mm-hmm. it's self-love. You've got to do it. I'm a big believer in, particularly if you work in one market, not emailing people after seven o'clock at night or in the weekends, just not doing it at all. And because I'm someone who if I get an email, I, I, I open it and I read it. It doesn't, even if it's not required, I do. Yeah, yeah. So I think other people do as well. So you've got to set the rules of engagement with the people that you work with and say, look, I want to be really clear. If I'm emailing you after that time I, and you don't want to be emailing, switch off your email. It's totally cool. I don't expect you to. You know. But um, I think the signposting of the things that you do to look after yourself are really important, definitely. Mm-hmm. And having some, I guess, kind of, compassion there that is what you mentioned like thinking about how things might be received on the other side of something and and considering if you know that you're going to answer this email not doing that and with a lot of other tasks I think that that's works as well I mean the technology is such now that there's really no need is there I mean even if I've chosen on Sunday afternoon to do two hours work which you know I don't very often but occasionally I do then you know you just set it on flipping schedule and it doesn't have to go through until 8 30 Monday morning there's no real (laughs) excuse for it to appear I love that I love that new feature actually on Outlook it's really good it tells you to do it yeah I'm in a role that isn't in one market so and and my boss is in the US so so it's, it's a bit more difficult for me I know we have talked a lot about kind of top-down efforts and your your leadership efforts, but I think one of the things that sometimes comes more bottom-up is when it comes to the lived experience gap, I know, which was mentioned in the NAB's All Ears community consultation. And so it's how you make sure efforts cater to the specific needs of different ethnic groups, LGBTQ plus colleagues, disabled colleagues, and things like that. So... I see, you know, you have ERGs and things like this to drive that change. I wondered if what other advice you both have when it comes to meeting that, well, to closing that lived experience gap. It was it was one of the most interesting findings in the report, actually, because we went in with a hypothesis that we were starting to believe there was becoming a generational gap. You know, there was kind of a pre-COVID, after COVID, you know, over 40, under 40 gap in terms of expectations around work and you know, flexibility and mental wellness and everything. But actually, it it wasn't true. But what was true is that, you know, people are expecting and there is gaps in terms of lived experience. And that's as true for a white man, a white woman, an older woman, a younger woman, as it is um, some of the more minoritized groups. However, the the key to the intersectionality, um, sectionality lens for me on this topic is that, you know, our research, and I think there's been other research in other industries, said 
although we are moving and there is a more open conversation about mental wellness, it is the most minoritized groups who've got the quietest voices on the topic, who feel the least able to speak up. So although it, we should take account of everyone's lived experiences, the reality is, and that's just about taking an individual human approach to a certain extent and, and trying to build that in as much as you can to systems and processes and big organizations, because you know you can't ultimately have every system and process down at the individual level. But I think you know, making sure less represented groups are given extra attention to feel more comfortable to bring these topics up is really important because disproportionately they will, they'll stay quieter on this topic of mental wellness and mental health. Exactly. I totally agree with what Suja said. I couldn't say it better. And I think it's about how you systemically listening to these groups, how are you making sure that it's that's not something that you need to remember to do, but that it's in the absolute... DNA of how the business works, because you're exactly right. And, and I've had people say to me, like, it's great you're talking about all of this, but why aren't you talking about intersectionality in the same conversation? Because they're completely part of the same thing. They're not two different things. And, and, and it's a really fair point and something that I'm trying, I'm to, I totally take on board. Certainly in agencies, we often listen to the loudest voice. And I think if you listen to the loudest voice, you're missing mm-hmm. the places where the suffering's happening the most. Mm-hmm. But looking at that inclusivity point as well, which you mentioned at the beginning, Josh, it's you might have a diverse agency, but then how do you make sure that people feel like they belong? Because you just you can magnify those feelings of isolation, can't you, and loneliness, which is a whole other topic which we won't get too deep into. But well, no, and also, but also, you know, let's like, let's not forget what we do as an industry. Like we're, we're communicating. You know, we're advertising, we're communicating to the UK population, right? And we've talked a lot, mm-hmm. you know, over the years about how if we don't have a diverse work- workforce, how can we possibly expect to be able to understand the audiences that we're communicating with? Well, th- that's what we're talking about right here is a really good example of that. If we're not understanding those lived experiences, how can we really be communicating and resonating with people in the work that we do? We can't. So it's critical, not just kind of from, from an altruistic, benevolent perspective or how do we support our people. It it's actually makes complete business sense as well in the way that we run our businesses. And I, and I don't think we've nailed that bit. I think, I mean, obviously we've got, we, we know from the numbers and I think, you know, the census, et cetera, are again from the IPA and I think the AA also really good ways of us tracking, you know, how diverse the industry is and what progress we're making amongst certain groups. But the reality is it does make the need for, having the skills to create inclusive cultures that people all feel they belong to, even more prevalent. I mean, we started a course last year in the charity called Inclusive Leader, directly out of a piece of DEI research we did the year before through various advertising and MIFA and other ally organisations. And that 100% puts the spotlight on how do you become an inclusive leader? Because it is a different job to what it was when I became a manager 20 or 35 years ago, I think, mm-hmm. you know, some of the core skills are the same, but our expectations in terms of how you accommodate those diverse points of view, groups, communities, uh, from neurodivergent ways of thinking to, you know, people with very different lived experience, take some skill and some empathy and some understanding on top of the hard skills that we expect of managers as well, like how to delegate and, you know, how to communicate and how to do an appraisal. So they're quite nuanced. And I think uh, the take-up's been really good so far through the charity. So I would just say to anyone who's thinking, even if they're not a leader now, that that's an area they'd like to improve on. Then remember, at the point of access, NABS is free to all. So sign yourself up. 
Wonderful. I think that's actually all we have time for today. Thank you both for joining us on this very special podcast about mental well-being in advertising and look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Just before you go, listeners, the TV Advertising Summit is coming up on 27th of February, hosted in America Square near Tower Hill, and it'd be great if we could see you there. The day will be jam-packed with panels and presentations and hosted by myself and Campaign UK Editor-in-Chief Gideon Spanier. Find the link to book your ticket in the show notes for this episode below. Next week on the Campaign Podcast, we will be shaking things up yet again as Monday's episode will be a Super Bowl special hosted by creativity and culture editor Gurgit Deegan. This will be followed by our news update later in the week. We hope you'll join us then. If you'd like to learn more about what we have been discussing today, please visit our website campaignlive.co.uk. Details of our subscriptions are available at campaignlive.co.uk forward slash membership. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campaign Podcast, please follow us, like us and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. A big thank you to Haymark's studio manager, Nav Pal, and to producer, Till Owen. And also to you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. On behalf of the campaign team, goodbye. <laughs>